Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello and welcome uh, to this event. Uh, My name is Piers Ludlow. I'm uh, head of the International History Department here at the London School of Economics. And it's my huge pleasure this evening to act as chair of uh, the second uh, of the Engelsberg uh, lecture series uh, this year. Uh, The Engelsberg lectures are brought to you by LSE Ideas, which is the LSE's uh, political think tank, uh, and they're generously funded by the Axel Johnson Johnson Foundation uh, of Sweden. Um, We're enormously uh, privileged this year to have a series of four talks on uh, alliances, uh, and these lectures are delivered uh, by tonight's lecturer, uh, Professor Margaret Macmillan. Uh, Margaret Macmillan is uh, an emeritus professor of international history uh, at Oxford uh, and a former warden of uh, St Anthony's College, where many years ago I did my own uh, doctorate, so it's particularly close to my own heart. Uh, she's also, perhaps more relevantly for tonight's uh, occasion, somebody who has written extensively about war and peace and about alliances. Uh, Her publications are too numerous to list in in their entirety, but I'll just refer quickly to two. Uh, The most recent is a book uh, entitled War, How Conflict Shaped Us. But perhaps key to tonight's talk is an earlier and very important uh, volume called Peacemakers, uh, looking at the Paris Peace Conference after the First World War. Uh, That Peacemakers won the Samuel Johnson uh, Prize. Uh, And it's on that uh, theme that, in a sense, uh, tonight's talk is going to dwell, since her title today is Victory and the Making of Peace, the Allies in the First World War. Before handing over to uh, Professor Macmillan for her talk, which will be about 40 minutes and which will then be followed by a QA, and a I just have one or two other admin announcements to make. The first is, if you want to get involved, uh, you can tweet us on the hashtag um, LSE Engelsberg, um, and you can also uh, pose questions as they occur to you during the event uh, using the Q&A function, and then when we get to the Q&A portion of the talk, uh, I will select uh, various questions and put them to Professor McMillan. Uh, but without further ado, I'll get out of your way and hand straight over to, uh, to Margaret. So the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Professor Ludlow. That was a very kind introduction. And as I think I said in my first lecture, I'm just sorry that I'm giving this on Zoom and not in person because it would be, I think, very nice to be able to be at the LSE. I've been reflecting on the purpose of the Engelsberg Chair in History and International Relations. And I think recent events have shown us just how important it is that history and international relations be so closely connected. We're seeing today with the Ukrainian crisis the way in which history is a factor. Certainly President Putin is using it very much as an excuse for what he's doing, but history is also an aid to thinking about what is going on. Um, We've been hearing more about appeasement in the 1930s and people are asking whether something similar is happening today, what, what we should avoid, what we should be doing. And so I think present events show us yet again how important it is to understand history and international relations. My theme tonight is about alliances, and I want to look at the making of victory or the winning of victory in the First World War and the making of peace. 
because both victory and the peace were carried out by alliances and therefore the relations within the alliance, the politics of those alliances were extremely important. Let me start with a question and that is what are alliances for? And the usual answer is that they are to bring together parties, let's call, let's call them nations in this case, to maximize their force against a common enemy. And so in a lot of the literature, an alliance doesn't come into force unless there is some sort of common threat that makes people want to sink their differences and work together. But there are other purposes of alliances as well. You can have an alliance to achieve a social or international goal, an alliance to ban nuclear weapons, for example, an alliance to deal with climate change, an alliance to deal with international pandemics. Alliances can also be a mechanism of control. You can bring someone into your alliance because you want to keep an eye on them. You want to make sure that they are not going to do something that you might find hurts your own interests. And of course, why they work and why some do and some don't, I think, is, is another very interesting question, which I'll be looking at a bit tonight. And there are different kinds of alliances as well. There are alliances where countries put themselves under the protection of a much more powerful partner. Sometimes that gives them less power. Sometimes, interestingly, we find that smaller powers, think of Serbia with Russia before the First World War, sometimes the smaller powers in an alliance can actually pull the greater power along because the greater power has tied up a part of its prestige with making an alliance with a smaller power. But quite often in alliances, you will have a dominant partner and the smaller powers will often go along with what is expected of them. The alliances in the Cold War, I think, were those with both, both the, both on, on, in the West and the East, alliances with a dominant partner, but I think there was something significantly different, and I'll be talking about that a bit later on in, in my remaining two lectures. With the United States, the dominant partner in the Western Alliance, you had a coalition of nations who came together as, as one historian put it, in an empire by invitation, they invited themselves to be part of an alliance, an empire indeed controlled by the United States. The alliance on the other side, the Warsaw Pact Alliance, was not one of choice. The Soviet Union dominated those countries that joined and they had no choice about whether they were going to join or not. The alliances in the First World War showed that range of difference among alliances and showed of course, the sorts of problems, difficulties, challenges that alliances can have. They faced, of course, in the 1914-18 war, challenges on a scale which they had not expected to face. If we could see the first slide, slide, please, the slide two, please, this will give you a sense of, of how people saw it at the time. This is an anti-war cartoon, but I think it very vividly gets the sense of tremendous waste and tremendous destruction of the First World War, and sure, sure terms of loss of life. Nine, nine million men, perhaps, we'll never know for sure, were killed in conflict on the different fronts of that war. And the consumption of that war, the demands on societies, the tremendous need for material, for war material, the continuing need. When they started the war, the military on both sides thought that they had enough in the way of supplies to see the war out. And they found that they were using up things that they expected to last for six months in about two weeks. And so the strain that the First World War put on societies to mobilize its resources, everything from manpower to coal to ammunitions was absolutely enormous. And what that meant was that the partners in the alliances found themselves having to deal with problems 
that they hadn't really expected to deal with. They found themselves dealing with the problems of coordination, shipping, making sure that they could get the ships that they needed to move their supplies around, making sure that the supplies got to where they were needing. What they also found, of course, was that they had to coordinate finance. They had to somehow pay for it. And this is not something I think that they had really thought about before the war started. They had to think of transportation. They were moving enormous quantities of men, huge numbers of men, enormous quantities of goods across very large distances indeed. And they also, of course, had the strategic challenge because they were fighting on a very large scale. The First World War was truly a world war. And there was fighting, of course, on the Western Front, but we should never forget the fighting as great on the Eastern Front, the fighting in the Middle East, the fighting in parts of Africa, the fighting in parts of Asia, the fighting, of course, at sea. And so the strains on those who were trying to manage the war and manage alliance relationships were something which they probably hadn't envisaged or absolutely enormous. I think it's quite telling that in the early days of the war, a number of the top generals retired sick. And I suspect it was because they simply buckled under the strain of trying to manage a war on a scale that no one had really expected there would be. It was also a question of trying to manage the differences within their own different nations, because not only were the two great alliances in the First World War, the central powers of Germany, Austria, Hungary, and eventually Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire, not only were they having to manage alliances among nations, but they were also having to manage alliances within nations. And so, for example, Austria-Hungary, that great multinational empire, was not only having to manage its relationships with Germany in particular, but also having to manage its relationships with its own peoples. One of the great tensions within Austria-Hungary, of course, was that between the Hungarians and the rest, but also tensions between the Czechs, for example, and the Germans, tensions between the Poles and, and the Germans, tensions between the Poles and the Hungarians. And the Triple Alliance, the, uh, sorry, the Triple Entente, the Triple Entente of Britain, France, and Russia, which eventually was going to be joined as well. This slide will show you by a number of other nations, was also going to have these tensions within. The British, of course, facing continual unrest within Ireland, um, as they had done before the First World War. But the British also facing tensions within their empire. The old dominions, of which my own country, Canada, was one, increasingly felt themselves to be marginalized, belittled, not consulted enough by the people in London. And what you saw in the course of the First World War was in the older parts of the British Empire, such as China, sorry, such as Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, Newfoundland, you saw South Africa, you saw pressure by those countries to gain a greater say, to gain, gain greater independence. The First World War, in fact, was going to be a period in which a number of parts of the British Empire moved if not to full independence, certainly to greater independence. It might have been expected, and certainly I think most people expected at the beginning of the war, that the alliance between Germany and Austria-Hungary would probably be particularly strong. That was because they shared, in some cases, a language. Um, the ruling elites in, in Austria spoke German. Of course, they usually spoke many languages and, of course, um, were often related by marriage and relationships with the elites in Germany. Both were conservative monarchies. In fact, however, the relationship was not a good one. Austria-Hungary increasingly felt itself to be dragged along by Germany. By 1916, the Austrians were, I think, longing to get out of the First World War, and would have got out if they could have found a way to do it, but they found themselves increasingly under the dominance of the Germans, both militarily and politically. 
And so by 1917, as the war moves into its last stages, Germany has really taken control in many ways of, of the war and Austria-Hungary is consulted less and less. The relationship which people might have thought wouldn't work very well was that at the heart of the Triple Entente and that was the relationship between Britain and France. The relationship between France and Russia was a close one and had been developing since the 1890s. The relationship between Britain and Russia had not been good, had only begun to mend in the first decade of the 20th century. Before that, and increasing still after that, the British and the Russians were rivals, rivals in Central Asia, and also rivals in what used to be called Persia, today's Iran. What is surprising, I think, about the Triple Entente is the ways in which the British and the French learned to deal with each other. And this was not easy. Um, it's not easy today, as we know, and, and often today you will find the old history being dragged up again. The British and Fra Britain and France had a long history of competition and conflict. In 1898, they had very nearly come to war over conflict in Africa on the upper, real, upper, upper reaches of the Nile in what was known as the Fashoda Crisis. Just to give you an example of how the rivalry had played out, General Kitchener, who became Secretary of State for War in 1914, had spent most of his career, as he saw it, fending off threats from France to the British Empire, um, also Russia. Britain and France continued to compete in the Middle East. In fact, it was going to, that competition was going to intensify during the First World War with the prospect of the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire. And so it would have been, you would have expected in 1914 that the British-French relationship in particular within the Triple Entente would not be a good one. And indeed the signs were not that good in the early stages of the war. As some of you may know, um, General Sir John French, who was in charge of the British Expeditionary Force at the start of the war in 1914, wanted to head for the Channel ports as it looked as if the Germans were going to break through and encircle Paris. And the military relationships certainly, and often at the political level as well, continued to be marked for throughout most of the war, particularly in the early stages, by tensions and mutual resentments. The French feared, as they said sometimes, that the British would fight to the last drop of French blood. They also feared, conversely and, and perhaps unreasonably, that the arrival of large numbers of British forces on French soil was a dangerous thing as well. They wanted British help, but when the British arrived in force, there were a number of French who feared that the British would never leave again. And the British, for their part, feared that the French would drop out. The British had possibly an exaggerated view of the shakiness of French politics and feared that governments were about to fall and that the French were about to make a separate peace with Germany. There were problems at the language at the, the level of language. Um, the British tended to speak a French which resembles that of, of Prime Minister Johnson's. Um, French senior officers were more, more likely to speak German than English because if they had wanted a foreign language, they wanted German, which was a way of being able to read what, what were the major military documents written by the Germans. Even at the level of the ordinary soldiers, there was, I think, mutual suspicion and in fact, surprising little contact. The French and the British fought on their own parts of the line. They didn't much like each other's ways. They didn't much like each other, other's food. Um, the British hated French coffee. They didn't like French bread. And the French found the enormous amounts of beef that the British ate extraordinary and very unpalatable. 
the nature of the war, the challenge of the war, really obliged both the British and the French to begin to work with each other in ways that they had not contemplated before 1914. The conduct of the war, the stalemates on the Western Front, the war weariness, the, the war weariness that a number of their peoples were feeling, all of these put pressure on the politicians to force more, both more military coordination, but also more planning. And so from 1914 onwards, through those early years of the war and through the very disappointing year from the Allied point of view of 1915, there were conversations about, between the British and the French, about greater coordination. Some bold spirits even raised the possibility of, of a combined command, a single commander in chief um, with a council to advise him, but this was seen as, as absolutely impossible. It was really 1917 that pushed the British and the French in the direction of greater coordination. They, they essentially faced the prospect of defeat unless they were able to coordinate their, their, their forces and their resources more. Two major things happened in 1914. Well, let, let, me just, let me just show you slide four, which will give you an idea of what was happening. This is, of course, from the Western Front, the end of the Battle of Passchendaele, which was another of those attacked, which, attacks which it was hoped would finally break through the German lines. And this gives you an indication of what it was that the military on the ground, the soldiers on the ground were actually up against. It was much easier to defend in the First World War, particularly on the Western Front, but also in parts of the Eastern Front, than it was to attack. And even if your attack was successful, as this picture shows, you were then having to move your forces and your guns, your heavy guns, your light field guns, your, 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 your transports, you were having to move it across land, which had been so chopped up and so scarred that moving was virtually, not entirely, but very nearly impossible. And so the persistence of the stalemate and the failure of these attacks with the dreadful losses that ensued forced both the politicians and the military to look for new ways of breaking the stalemate. The two major political developments also affected the attitude of the Allies and the thinking of the Allies in 1917. So we could see, see slide five, please. The first of these was that a very important part of the Allies Russia dropped out, basically was, was, was in the process of leaving the war. And this is an idealized painting taken of the moment when Lenin, the leader of the Bolsheviks, a small, to many people, obscure revolutionary party, who man who'd been in exile in Switzerland during the war, managed, thanks to the support of the German high command, to arrive back in what was then Petrograd, today St. Petersburg, and as I say, this is an idealized painting of Lenin arriving in Petrograd, being greeted. Um, Stalin, who by 1935, when this painting was done, was of course the dictator of the Soviet Union, had himself painted in. Um, he had not in fact been there. But Lenin is shown, and then this is, is, I think, fairly accurate, is shown getting off the train in what was known as the Finland station, coming from Finland in Petrograd, being greeted by an enthusiastic crowd. And what Lenin did, often against the opposition of his own Bolshevik party, was insist that Russia would no longer try to fight in the war. Um, he was prepared to make peace at virtually any price, and, and the price he did make peace at was, was very large indeed. Russia had to give up a great deal of territory, had to hand over its remaining gold once Lenin was in control. As he moved towards power from 
February 1917 onwards, there'd already been a revolution in Russia, which had installed a constitutional government. Lenin, after his arrival in, in April 1917, coined what was in retrospect a brilliant slogan, peace, bread, land. And that is what a great many people in Russia wanted. They wanted an end to the fighting, they wanted to eat. And for the majority of Russians who lived in the countryside, who were landless peasants, they wanted their own piece of land. And so by November 1917, Lenin had managed to seize power with his Bolshevik party with a fair degree of popular support and it was quite clear, it had been clear in fact long before this, that Russia was no longer going to be taking part in the First World War. What that meant for Britain and France of course was that Germany would now be able to, once it got peace or even an amnesty or even a, a truce with Russia, would be able to start moving the large numbers of forces with their equipment that, that Germany had on the Eastern Front would be able to begin to move it back to the Western Front. And that might well tip the balance in favor of Germany and allow a breakthrough on the Western Front. And so the Allies are forced into realization that they've got to take every measure possible to try and resist what is the expected German attack. The second thing that happened, which of course is from the Allied point of view, an asset, and if you could see the next slide please, was that the United States entered the war. At about the same time, this is President Woodrow Wilson, Democratic president who had been re-elected in 1916 on a promise of keeping the United States out of the war. President Wilson, by April 1917, at about the same time that Lenin was arriving back in Russia to try and push his agenda on the Russian people, President Wilson had decided the time had come for the United States to enter the war. The United States had already become an important factor in the war because increasingly it had become a source of finance, a source of war material, a source of supplies to the Allies. Although the United States did not formally declare itself to be in support of the Allies, in fact it had moved into a position of support, helped by the actions of the German high command who now were virtually in control of not just the armies in, in Germany, but in control of the German state. And the German high command decided on a policy of unrestricted submarine warfare in 1917, which meant that any neutral shipping, and of course a great deal of the neutral shipping was coming from the United States, any neutral shipping approaching a zone around the British Isles or the French coast could and might be sunk. And there were a number of, of ships that were sunk, a number of American lives were lost, and this helped to turn American public opinion increasingly against Germany and its ally, Austria-Hungary. What also happened is that the British had found a telegram sent by the German foreign minister to Japan and to Mexico, urging them to make war on the United States. Japan, in fact, was an ally in the First World War of Britain and France, but urging them to make war on the United States and promising that Germany would support Mexico's um, demands on American territory and the British eventually who'd found, got the hold of this telegram, the Zimmerman telegram as it was known, got hold of this telegram, um, had decoded it, showed it to President Wilson, and if anything were needed to confirm his view that the Germans simply were a menace to international society, a deeply undemocratic power, that was it. And so in April 1917, Wilson, and it pained him deeply to do it, went to Congress and asked for a declaration of war, which he got from the American Congress. And so the United States was now coming into the, the First World War. And the question for the Allies was, could they hold on long enough 
for the American entry into the war to actually make a difference because the United States, as it entered the war, was not prepared for war. It had a very small army about the size of Portugal's. It didn't have the transport to get troops across the Atlantic. It didn't have the equipment they needed when they got there. And so the United States was going to take a year, virtually a year, to gear up for a full-scale involvement in the war. And so from the British and French point of view, could they hang out long enough for the United States to begin to make a difference? And this is what makes, again, from the point of view of the Allies, the last stages of the war so absolutely critical. And what forces them again, and what it does is force them again to take steps that they were reluctant to take with greater coordination and greater involvement with each other's, with each other's plans. And so the United States comes into the war but as I say, it doesn't come in initially in great force. So if I could see the next slide, there was also a problem with the United States entry in the war. This is um, General John Pershing, Black Jack Pershing, as he, as he was known by those who didn't care for him, and there were quite a few people who didn't care for him. Woodrow Wilson gave Pershing strict orders to keep the American Expeditionary Force, the AEF, independent of the British and the French command. I think Wilson was thinking of the US um, involvement when, when peacemaking came, that if somehow the British and, and French forces had managed to absorb the American forces, the United States would have less of a voice. And I think there was also an element of nationalism here, that the United States was engaging in an overseas war for the first time in its history. Uh, if you, take, if you, if you, if you um, omit the Spanish-American War, but this was engaging in an overseas war in, in Europe, and both Wilson and Pershing were determined that the United States should be a separate force. This did not initially help the Allies, as, as you can imagine. Um, it did also, did also did not help the Allies that Pershing believed in the sort of offensive war the Allies had learned was too costly and wasn't in fact going to, war, going to work. And Pershing continued to want to mount the sort of massive attacks that had proven to be so ineffective and so costly in the early stages of the war. And so relations, although the United States came into the war, relationships were not always all that easy, particularly on the ground. Nevertheless, with all these tensions, with, with the element of time, with the fears that Germany was going to be in a position to make a final challenge before the Americans could begin to counter the German um, the movements of German troops from the East, the Allies did managed to make two very important decisions, both of which they'd been moving to. Two key developments which have begun really by 1917. First of all, the emergence of a supreme allied commander. There'd been various attempts made by the political leaders on both sides, by Lord George and by Clemenceau, to push onto, the, onto their military the idea of a supreme allied council and a supreme allied commander. They had, of course, faced resistance from their own military who, who tended to, even though they cooperated, tended to want to maintain control of their own troops. In November 1917, the political leaders managed at least to get a Supreme Allied War Council uh, with a very broad and, and rather vague mandate to watch over the general conduct of the war. And this Supreme Allied War Council did begin to meet as a regular body it, it included the prime ministers of each of the allied countries, and that included Italy as well, and eventually um, the representative of President Wilson, plus a representative of each member nation. And so you begin to get the beginnings of, of coordination. 
1918, the question of a supreme allied commander becomes even more acute because the Germans mount a series of last minute desperate attempts to break the allied lines in the West before the Americans could begin to make a difference. For a march to the summer of 1918, the Germans mounted a series of attacks which came close to breaking through the allied lines and, and there were fears that the Germans would actually succeed in doing this. The allied lines held but in the course of those great attacks, the Allied leaders got together and managed to get a single commander-in-chief for the Western Front. And general Ferdinand Foch, um, the chief French general, was made the supreme Allied commander and did get, um, I think, fairly enthusiastically support um, from Haig, who was in, in General Haig, who was in charge of the British forces. The second thing that was happening was the emergence of much greater Allied economic sharing. And this was something which had emerged very painfully. But from the beginning of the war, the British and the French, and then later the Italians, had realized that they had to share finances and that they had to have agreements about purchasing, that if they found themselves competing for the same types of war material, it would be inefficient and not what they needed at all. And so you began to get um, coordination. In 1916, a shipping control committee was set up by the British and the French and an inter-ally Bureau of Munitions to again try and coordinate what was needed in the way of transportation and production. And these agreements were going to be followed by further agreements on the sharing of wheat, the sharing of coal. And then in November 1917, an Allied Maritime Transport Council, which included the United States, was also set up, which began to play a very important role in making sure that supplies were directed to where they were absolutely needed. So by the summer of 1918, the Allies had managed to coordinate enough. They had managed to deal with General Pershing and his wish to keep American troops separate. Um, Pershing did, in fact, agree that American troops could be used in the face of these massive German um, attacks. Um, they did, in fact, um, some Americans replaced uh, British and American forces in quieter parts of the line so they could be redeployed. And so coordination began to really pay off. The Germans also, I think, had exhausted themselves in the great attacks they made and no longer had the capacity to fight on. They were running out by the summer of 1918. They were running out of the supplies they needed and they were running out of manpower. Everyone, however, I think was surprised by how quickly the war ended. Allied planning was assuming, and this slide shows American soldiers celebrating the end of the war on the 11th of November 1918. And Scenes like this were seen, of course, all across the Western Front. They were seen in the Middle East. Um, they were seen, indeed, around the world. The Allies had assumed that the war would go on until the summer of 1919. And the suddenness of the German collapse was something that took them very much by surprise. Germany had intended to fight on, but one by one, its allies began dropping away. Austria-Hungary was quite clear, could no longer fight on. In fact, was about to disintegrate into its component parts. Bulgaria had sued for an armistice. And in November, the beginning of November, the Ottoman Empire was going to sue for an armistice as well. And so Germany asked for an armistice and the war, much to everyone's surprise, suddenly came to an end. The ways in which the armistice was made caused a certain amount of tension among the allies because it was made in the form of the German government sending a appeal for an amnesty, for an armistice to the 
American president, President Wilson, and President Wilson had responded to this. And I think there was a certain amount of resentment among both the British and the French leaders that they had in fact fought the war so long that they should not have been, um, they should have been taking, taking part in it. And the tensions I think over the making of the armistice um, give you some indication of what is going to happen at the peace conference. When wars end, the coalitions that have successfully made those wars often themselves fall to pieces as well. They have always had different interests. The Allies came into the First World War with different interests. Russia entered the war to prevent, to, to in part to, to help its French ally. France entered the war because it had no choice because it was attacked by Germany. Great Britain entered the war certainly to defend Belgium and, and also to defend France. But another British motive, and it was certainly there in, in the Foreign Office, was that Britain could play a part in the war usefully to prevent both France and Russia from becoming so strong, too strong. What the British did not want was France and Russia on their own to defeat Germany, which would leave them in charge of the continent. So even in the way in which the war started, I think you begin to see that the differences among the different nations fighting it are never entirely going to go away. Um, about a, a few days, a few weeks after the war ended, Georges Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister, said to Lloyd George, I have to tell you that from the very day after the armistice, I found you an enemy to France. Well, replied Lloyd George, was it not always our traditional policy? And of course, what happens when a war ends is, is the force, the war itself, and the need to defeat the enemy and the need to avoid defeat, which has held an alliance together, is removed. And the national interests, which have never gone away, which have never entirely been, been submerged, come out again. Another tension that comes out very strongly um, is suspicion that the other parts of the alliance are, are getting too strong. The British and the French were concerned, although they needed American help, they were concerned that the United States was getting too strong. One of the reasons that both Britain and France were relieved that the war didn't go on into 1919 was that they feared that the United States would play a major and dominant role in, in ending the war if it continued to 1919, which would leave it in a very strong position on the continent, which was not something that either the British or the French wanted. From the point of view of the United States, they had come into the war to defend democracy with what they had, but they came in with a mistrust which was based on their own history of Europe, of Europeans, and the old ways of Europeans. They saw Europeans as sunk in old power competitions. They believed that Europeans were about maximizing the interests of their own countries, and the United States represented a different type of society and a different type of way of looking at the war. Um, the United States very tellingly did not become an ally formally, although it's customary to refer, refer to it as part of the alliance. It always insisted on calling itself an associate power. And Woodrow Wilson made it very clear that the United States was coming in for different purposes than the countries on whose side he was fighting. The United States was coming in for the benefit of humanity. Britain and France were in it. He didn't quite say it like this, but Britain and France, he implied, were in it for themselves. The ending of wars always raises these problems as these national interests begin to come out. What I think made the ending of the First World War even more difficult 
were two other factors. One is the struggle had been so great and had lasted for so long. And this was not a war that people had expected to last for four years. This was a war that people had expected to be over by Christmas, or most people had expected it to be over by Christmas of 1914. The greatness of the, of the damage, the cost of that war, the upheavals created by that war, Austria-Hungary gone, Russia in revolution, the Ottoman Empire about to fall to pieces, the center of Europe faced with, center of Europe faced with revolution, with starvation, with upheavals of, of all sorts. The cat catastrophe left behind by the war also raised great expectations. People thought, partly, and one can understand why, that someone should pay for it. And that was to be one of the issues at the Paris Peace Conference. But what people also thought was that somehow something better should come out. And Woodrow Wilson himself worried about this. He said, as he came on his boat to Europe, I foresee an agony of expectation. The costs of the war had been so great that I think people had tremendous and, and often unrealistic expectations of what might happen at the end. And what was also happening was empires were ending. And as we learned at the end of 1989, the ending of empires, the ending of a period of conflict always raises problems because suddenly there's a lot of instability, suddenly there's this instability, there's suddenly an opportunity for nations that have previously been repressed to gain their independence again. And this was going to happen after 1918 as well. The Paris Peace Conference, and this is a famous painting by the British artist William Orpen, of the opening of the conference in the foreign minister's room at the Quai d'Orsay. The room still looks very much like this. It was a highly ceremonial opening. It was held in Paris because the French insisted that it be held there. And the chairman of the conference was the man you see sitting in the middle, um, Georges Clemenceau. Next to him is Woodrow Wilson on one side and on the other side is David Lloyd George. And these three men, plus the Italian prime minister, Vittorio Orlando, who was sometimes included as a matter of courtesy, were the big four. And in the end, if we could see the next slide, they were going to be the ones who actually determined what happened. Oh, sorry. No, this is, this is, um, uh, yeah, the next slide, please. Um, this is, this is, this is just a slide. I'd, I've forgotten I had it in here. This is a slide of Woodrow Wilson arriving at the Paris Peace Conference. Tremendous excitement when he arrived. When his boat arrived in the French port of Brest, someone said virtually every single living being, including the dogs in the city, came out to greet him. And as his train moved north towards Paris, his doctor woke up in the night and looked out and the, the railway tracks were lined with French men, women and children just standing there silently watching Woodrow Wilson go by. There was hopes that Woodrow Wilson was bringing both recompense for the war somehow, that somehow he was going to make things right and somehow he was going to build a better world. And this is something that was going to be one of the difficult pressures on the peacemakers that so much was expected and so much was expected in particular of Woodrow Wilson himself. The Paris Peace Conference, which met in 19, January 1919, that picture at the Quai d'Orsay shows it meeting, shows it, shows it meeting was meant to initially drop the peace terms to be offered to the defeated nations, but it took them so long to drop terms they could all agree on that they didn't have terms ready for Germany, which was chief among the defeated nations until April 1919, at which point they realized they couldn't go into another full-blown 
peace conference and negotiation. I think they feared that the peace conference itself and the allies would fall to pieces. There had already been tremendous disagreements with Italy storming out and the Japanese threatening to leave and the Chinese threatening to leave. And so it was decided simply to give the peace terms to Germany and Germany would be given two weeks to deal with them. The peace conference dealt with a huge number of issues and a very large number of nations came to it. What it had to do, its prime job was to get peace terms drawn up for the defeated, but it found itself also dealing with the sheer chaos left behind by the war. And of course it had to deal with that promise that so many people were expecting of establishing a new world order. Because there was such a concentration of power in Paris, a number of petitioners came. So the next slide will show you, I think, one of those petitioners who came. Oh no, sorry, this is, this is, this is the big four. Um, there is Lloyd George on the left, Orlando, the Italian prime minister, Georges Clemenceau standing there with that very characteristic mustache and then beside him, Woodrow Wilson. In the end, it was going to be Lloyd George, Clemenceau and Wilson who made the major decisions because they represented the major powers at the peace conference. They had to deal, as I say, with all these petitioners who were coming, but they also had to deal with the very serious problem of what to do about Germany. And here, of course, they were bound to disagree. There's always been disagreement at the end of wars about how you deal with the defeated nations. Do you punish them? Do you make it impossible for them ever to fight again? Or do you try somehow to bring them back into the community of nations? And that issue and those alternatives were very much there in Paris. Was Germany to become a nation like other nations? Was it to become part of the world order? Or was it to be treated like a pariah? And feeling, as you can imagine, was, was very strong indeed against Germany. But how badly or how strongly or how severely should Germany be treated was a major issue. Wilson had made it quite clear that he didn't want what he called a punitive peace. On the other hand, he felt Germany should pay reparations for the damage it had done by waging war, in particular on, on Belgium and France. Clemenceau wanted to protect France. He had seen German troops invade his country twice in the course of his lifetime. He'd been a young man in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 and had seen that invasion. And then of course he had lived to see the First World War when Germany had invaded France again. And what he wanted to ensure was above all France's security. It is said that he ordered, I don't know if it happened, but he said when he died, he wanted to be buried facing standing up in the direction of Germany. He saw Germany as an existential threat to France and he was prepared to do what it took to save France. He was, however, not as extreme as some of his generals and some of his right wing. And he did not, in the end, support dividing Germany up into a number of different states, uh, reducing its power by simply uh, dissolving the German Confederation. Um, he saw that eventually France was going to have to deal with Germany and was prepared to work with his allies. The Italians, Orlando, wanted Italy had come into the war partly for idealistic reasons but partly also in an old 19th century fashion looking for land territory and advantage what the Italians wanted was to round their borders up in the north to make them more secure and to reach the heights of the Alps and the Dolomites what they also wanted was territory which had once been Austrian on the other side of the Adriatic Sea United States well, the United States kept on saying that it wanted nothing for itself, that it wanted, and as Wilson's 14 points and other speeches pointed out, 
It wanted a newer and fairer world order. It wanted a world in which free trade was possible to unite peoples. It wanted free navigation on the world seas. It wanted to reduce arms. And above all, what he wanted was a League of Nations to provide collective security for each other and to work together on common issues, such as improving the lot of peoples around the world, um, bringing a greater fairness, both economic and, and otherwise, to the world. In fact, though, however, as some pointed out, the United States had done well out of the war. It had expanded its economy enormously, and its business people had moved in to areas which had previously been dominated by the British and the French. And so there are those who would argue the United States could talk in this way, and I think it was genuine, but that it also had benefited from the war and wanted to create a world order with, for example, free trade that would continue to benefit itself. Britain was somewhere between France and the United States. The British talked about how they didn't really want very much, but they were able to do that because they'd achieved what they wanted effectively before the peace conference met. What they had always feared was German power, and particularly the German Navy, and the German Navy was now in their hands. They had also taken, or parts of their empire had taken, the German colonies, which they had often wanted. And so the British were able, I think, to talk in a way that was closer to the United States, perhaps, than to France, because they'd already achieved a good deal of what they wanted. Well, the peace conference, with this enormous agenda of what it had to do, did, I think, um, not a great job, but it did, I think, what it could have done. The, uh, they did work together. Um, there were very difficult moments. Orlando worked, burst into tears at one point and worked out, or worked out over, German, over, over Italian claims. But they did manage to achieve consensus or at least come to agreements. And a lot of this was through very hard negotiation. Clemenceau wanted reparations from Germany, but backed down on how much. Um, under pressure from both the British and the French, and the French backed down on taking the western part, the, the western part of Germany, west of the Rhine, from Germany. The British and French may not have had as much enthusiasm for the League of Nations as Woodrow Wilson did, but they did in fact support it, and they both became founding members. It wasn't, as people have commented ever since, it wasn't a peace settlement that was necessarily a very fair one, although you could argue that Germany was treated much more savagely at the end of the Second World War. But the peace settlement was an attempt to deal with the very vast range of problems. And the alliance held, there were real tensions among it, but the alliance held at least until the signing of the Treaty of Versailles with Germany in June 1918, 1919. And that was the most important treaty of all because Germany was the key member of the Central Alliance. The other treaties were, were much easier to negotiate. The Allied States at the time felt they'd done a good job and they felt that whatever mistakes there were could be sorted out later when the League was up and running. Woodrow Wilson believed that the League would be something like the British Constitution, which he'd always had great admiration for, that it would be an organic institution which developed, which didn't need too much in the way of written regulations, but it would develop over time. The great irony, of course, was that the United States did not join the League, and thus it was weakened from the beginning. The settlements were particularly unpopular, of course, among those countries which had lost, but then countries that lose generally tend not to like their settlements. Um, Germany very systematically, in fact, attacked the provisions of the Treaty of Versailles, increasingly portrayed it as, as unjust and unfair, 
And that was a view which took root in Germany, but also began to take root in the English speaking countries. And that was going to play in to appeasement. What also I think helped to make the peace settlements unpopular was that other countries also felt that they had been badly treated. Hungary felt a deep sense of resentment that it had lost a huge amount of territory under the Treaty of Trianon. Italy felt resentment that it had not got all the land that it had claimed. The Japanese, who were on the Allied side in the First World War, felt that they had not been treated as racial equals and had not been able to get the respect that they felt they deserved. And of course, as we know, in the Middle East, the great powers had made what were turned out to be conflicting promises. And so those settlements were going to come increasingly under attack. The wartime alliance lasted partly until, well, lasted more or less until 1919, 1920. But the hopes that it would continue to last into the 1920s were not to be borne out. Clemenceau had hoped that Britain and the United States would be his allies, would help to ensure France's security, but the United States, by failing to join the League and failing to support an Anglo-French, Anglo-American Anglo guarantee to, to France, really withdrew from Europe and the British turned out increasingly to their empire and to the wider world. And when the French asked about the Anglo-French, Anglo-American guarantee of security, the British said it would only operate if the Americans were in it and that therefore that guarantee no longer worked. France tried to build support in Central Europe by building a little entente of Yugoslavia, Romania and Czechoslovakia, but that was not going to develop into anything much. And so the ending of the First World War, while it did not lead to the Second World War, helped the, create the conditions for that war. And so in 1939, another war was going to break out and yet again, another alliance was going to have to be formed. But that's the subject for another lecture. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much for a fan, fantastic overview of a lot of the First World War itself and, and of the, the war's aftermath. Uh, I've got a lot of questions building up in the uh, chat, which I will turn to in a second, but can I take advantage of being in the chair to pose uh, to myself to start the ball rolling? Um, I suppose the first point uh, would be, um, am I correct in sort of gathering from what you say that in a way what you're arguing is that for all its faults what is remarkable about the Versailles Treaty is that there was an agreed treaty at all that the 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 the, the achievement of reaching a deal of sorts however imperfect however flawed that was was in itself a great achievement and then if I can move on to the second question um, does it also then follow that, in a sense, the real problem, if one wants to talk about the longer term failure of the First World War settlement, is not so much the nature of the treaty itself, but the fact that the alliance that had made it fell apart immediately afterwards and couldn't be resurrected until uh, another time in another place in, in, in 1940, 41. Well, two very yeah, good questions. Um, I think in the first case, getting any sort of agreement was something. And if you look at the other endings of wars, that is always a great difficulty. Um, the ending of the Napoleonic Wars and the Congress of Vienna met in 1814 and was so, dis well, not dysfunctional is the wrong word, but there was so many difficulties. There was talk in the winter of 1814 
of, of, a, of a possible war between Britain and Prussia um, as they disagreed over the terms to be offered and disagreed over, over a number of issues. And it was only, I think, really the emergence, the, 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 the coming back of Napoleon from Elba that brought the Grand Alliance together again. Um, and at that point, they realized that they could not afford the sort of disagreements which had very nearly broken it apart in 1814. And they maintained an alliance and they actually managed to make peace um, after Napoleon was finally defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. What they did, which probably in retrospect, they might have considered doing, or they did consider doing, but didn't do in, in 1919, what the Grand Alliance did was bring France in. France was there at the Congress of Vienna in the form of, of, of the shape of, of Talleyrand, um, highly skilled foreign minister. And so France became part of the settlement and therefore had a stake in guaranteeing it. I think the nature of the First World War made it almost impossible to have that sort of negotiation with Germany. Um, partly, I think, because of public opinion. Um, one of the, the sort of freedoms that, and freedom is perhaps the wrong word, but what did make it easier for the statesmen at the Congress of Vienna was that they didn't have to really deal with the public opinion. They, they, were, they had a freer hand to make arrangements, and on the whole, they only had to answer to a very small elite or, or to, their, to their ruling monarchs. What made it, I think, difficult at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 was the pressure of public opinion. And Clemenceau, I think, at one point said, you know, he, he talked about possibly making um, some sort of arrangement with Bolshevik Russia. And he said, there's no way I can have them coming to the peace conference because my own electorate would, would, would throw me out. Um, they, these were democratic politicians who had to think about the next election and they had to worry about their own public opinion. And the feeling against Germany was so strong that if they had actually sat down and done a long negotiation with Germany, as they'd originally thought of doing, it's not clear that their publics would have gone for it. In fact, Woodrow Wilson said that he wanted to get the peace conference over with and the treaty signed because he feared that American opinion was so hostile to Germany that they might insist on even harsher terms. And so I think the constraints on the statesmen in 1919 were greater perhaps. I've always thought that one of the difficulties of the, the, the arrangements that were made in, in, in Paris was that those who'd been defeated, both, both those who'd been defeated and those who'd won were unhappy with them. Um, now this again often happens, but I think if you look at the case of Germany, um, the Germans did not know until the very end that they were losing on the battlefield. Um, the high command had kept it not only from the government, but from the German public. And so the shock of, le of losing in, in November 1911, 19, 1918 was enormous. And almost immediately, and I think the German high command had, had a certain, more than a certain amount to do with this, almost immediately you began to get the story going around that Germany had not really lost, that it had been stabbed in the back by nefarious forces at home, you know, the, the usual, well, in, in, in terms of the politics at the time, the usual suspects of left-wingers, communists, and Jews, um, often overlapping categories. And so you got growing in Germany fostered by a very active campaign by the high command and its supporters, but also I think fostered in, in the German foreign office, which had a special unit actually to do this, that Germany had not lost the war, that it had asked for an armistice based on Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. It had believed that it would be treated fairly. In fact, there were those Germans who thought that Woodrow Wilson's notion of self-determination 
meant that they'd actually be able to absorb the German-speaking parts of Austria, and Germany would grow rather than, than suffer any, any penalties for, for having lost the, the First World War. And then added to that, you've got the, the myth spreading that Germany had not really started the First World War, that the First World War had just somehow happened. And this became a, really quite a common view. Um, as Lloyd George said, the Europe, nations of Europe slithered over to the brink, slithered over the brink, um, which suggests that no one was really responsible. And so what you got in Germany was an unwillingness to accept any responsibility for the war, either starting or to accept that Germany had actually lost the war. And that, of course, undermined the whole premise the treaty was based on. And it became something that the enemies of Weimar Germany, the republic that was set up after 1919, used because it was Weimar Germany representatives who had actually signed the treaty. Now, I've always thought, and, and you know, we can go through other countries. I mean, Hungary was a revisionist power, deeply un unset, dissatisfied. The Japanese increasingly felt that they were not being treated as equals by the Western democracies and, and moved increasingly in a direction of, of autarky, looking after themselves, um, host hostility to the West. But I've often thought that if it had not been for the, the Great Depression, things might have turned out very differently. You know, if you look at what was happening in the 1920s, as historians have been doing, in fact, some of the signs are, are you know, you, you could see quite optimistic signs. Germany did become a member of the League of Nations. It did agree at the Locarno agreements to respect its borders in the West. And of course, there was hope of an Eastern Locarno as well, which, which never happened, but that was you know, something that people talked about. Um, Japan, at least in the, 19, in the 1920s, was an active member of the League of Nations and, and supporting international organizations. The United States, it is true, did not join the League, but it did remain engaged in a number of ways. And, and there were American observers at the League and the United States took a lead in, in a major disarmament conference in Washington, which managed to bring a sort of naval peace in the, in the Pacific. And so I think my own view is that while the First World War left a lot of dissatisfaction behind, over time that have, might, have, might have ameliorated and might have, you know. But I do think there is something about massive conferences to end wars. Um, I think it's quite striking there was no such massive conference at the end of the Second World War. Thank you. Okay, we've got a couple of questions that pick up on points that you've just made. Uh, one of them from uh, Michael Blanning is, could the Entente have done anything to avoid the stab in the back view from developing in Germany? And did they care? So that was the first, and I'll perhaps pass on one other before, before you answer. Um, so, in, so this is from uh, Wai Ho Chuk. In view of the problem mentioned at the conclusion of the war, are there any similarities in the development after World War II? Um, so sort of differences and similarities, I know that's taking you to the territory you're going to cover in future lectures, but perhaps you can give us a little foretaste of that. Sure. Um, could the Allies have done anything about the stab in the back theory? It's hard to see how they could have done it. Um, you know, this was very much a matter of internal German politics and they didn't really have, you know, they, I suppose they had, they could have tried ways of countering it, but I think they probably didn't think that it mattered. And a number of people, I think outside Germany began to believe that Germany had been very unfairly treated. I'm not sure that outside Germany, people accepted the stab in the back so much, but they certainly accepted the argument that Germany had been treated extremely unfairly and should not have been blamed for starting the first world war. Um, you know, the Foreign Office in Germany special unit actually showed selected documents to, for example, an American historian called Harry, Harry Elmer Barnes, who wrote 
quite extensively about the, this and quite influentially and helped to shape public opinion. Um, what the Allies could have done was actually enforce the treaty better um, because what had been written into the treaty were provisions that if they'd been forced, enforced would have made it difficult for Germany to wage war again. For example, Germany was not meant to have an army of more than 100,000, which, which was actually fairly easy for the Allies to keep an eye on. But what it did was have a very high number of non-commissioned officers and officers in proportion to the number of enlisted men, much higher than most other armies of the time, which meant what it had essentially was a skeleton on which it could build an armed force more quickly. It was not meant to have tanks, and what the Germans did was do a, an agreement with Soviet Russia, which was itself something of a pariah nation, to test its tanks out inside Soviet Russia, you know, in those vast distances where foreigners were not encouraged to go. Germany was not meant to have an air force, um, but you had an awful lot of flying clubs in Germany in the 1920s, you know, which would meet on Saturdays. Men would march out in military formation wearing what looked like uniforms and get into their planes and fly in formation. Um, which is why Germany was able to announce that it had an air force very soon after Hitler took power. Um, so I think more could have been done to enforce, but I think there was, the Germans were meant to enforce it themselves, which of course they weren't going to do. And there was a very small Allied Control Commission, which was understaffed, um, which was not able to really inspect properly what was going on in Germany. But you know, the question of how you enforce treaties, it's a, it's a matter of how much you want to enforce them. And from the point of view of the Americans, you know, they, they didn't want to get involved in Europe that much anymore anymore. The British certainly didn't want to get involved in trying to keep Germany down. Um, you know, as I say, they were, they were looking out to their empire. And so I think, you know, the, the treaty could have perhaps been enforced better. But I think what really made a difference was, was the impact of, of the Great Depression on Germany and the impetus it gave to parties on the far left, the Communist Party and parties on the far right, in particular the Nazi Party, and both attacked Weimar democracy and helped to bring about its death. Now, as for 1945, um, what happened in 1945, of course, is a number of agreements had already been made before the end of the war, and what the statesmen very much had in mind was what they, as they saw it, had gone wrong after 1918. And so this time they were not going to bargain with the defeated nations, which is why they adopted the policy of unconditional surrender. There was to be no um, armistice signed with provisions for, for negotiation. No, no promises were going to be made. Furthermore, the defeated nations, and that, that meant particularly Germany and Japan, were going to be occupied. Um, they were not going to have their own governments. And so it was a very different ending to the war. And as you know, what happened in the end because of the development of the Cold War, Germany remained divided, and part of it under Soviet, within the Soviet Empire and part of it within, within the West. And eventually separate peace treaties were signed um, by the separate allies. There was no common treaty ever signed um, with Japan or with, with Germany um, because the Cold War meant that it was impossible to get cooperation again among those who had been allies in the war. But you could argue, actually, in, in a curious way, that the peace settlements made, or the, the not settlements, but the peace that was imposed after the end of the Second, war, Second World War actually endured a lot longer. Now, that may have been because of the Cold War, but certainly it, it, we, we saw a prolonged period of peace, at least in Europe and between Japan and its neighbors after the Second World War.
Can I pick you up on that point you were making a moment ago about uh, German division post-1945? Um, and this links to a question that was posed during the lecture by Vijay Schrau. Uh, why was Germany allowed to remain unified given the wars of 1871 and 1914? And then leading, sort of looking forward, will German reunification in 19, 1989 lead to more instability in Europe, just as it did in 1871? Well, that's the sort of question that historians always hate because it takes us into the future rather than the past. But uh, certainly the first part, it links yeah. with what you were talking about. Well, there was talk about, um, I mean, Germany was a very new country. Uh, it had only come into existence in 1871, and it had been made out of a number of independent kingdoms, um, chief among them Prussia, which, which had the biggest army and was the biggest economic unit as well, but nevertheless, independent kingdoms, Bavaria, for example. And there was talk in France in particular of reducing Germany to its component parts, um, having a separate Bavaria again, having a separate Saxony again, um, making Prussia itself much smaller because Prussia was seen as the locomotive that had turned Germany into this war-making country um, and the inspiration for a lot of the militarism in Germany. But Lloyd George, I think rightly, and I think Woodrow Wilson agreed with him, said, look, before 1870, German nationalism disrupted Europe. Um, German nationalists wanted a country and this was a very potent force. If we separate Germany up again, we'll simply have the same thing again and we'll end up with wars as we had from the German, you know, we have to remember there were German wars of unification. There was a war against Austria, the war against Denmark. Um, the war against France was only the last of the German wars of unification. And Lloyd George worried, I think with reason that if you simply separated Germany up again, that the force of German nationalism would remain so strong that it would disrupt the heart of Europe. And so although it was considered, and although there were certainly those in France who wanted it, um, it was ruled out by both the United States and Britain. What it was hoped, and Woodrow Wilson certainly talked to it like this, was that Germany would become a different Germany, that it would become democratic and peace-loving. Um, as Wilson said, um, we have to remember his father was a Protestant minister, so he tended to think in these terms of redemption. But as he said, when Germany proves itself to be a nation worthy of taking its place among other nations, it can join the League of Nations. Um, but at the moment, it needs to sort of be rehabilitated, it needs to reform itself, it, it needs to repent. And so I think there was belief, and, and I think from the British point of view also, um, Germany had been their biggest trading partner before the war. It was a very important economic unit, and there were quite a few people in Britain who said, you know, we need to get back to that. Um, you know, we need to remember that we need to, um, we need a prosperous Germany at the center of Europe. It was, it was an argument that John Maynard Keynes made as well, you know, without Germany at the center of Europe. Um, Europe itself will suffer because Germany is not just a major power, it's also a major economic power. Um, I'm trying to remember the second part of that question about, was there a part about post-1945? So, well, no, there was a there was a future-looking one, okay, saying yeah. whether, whether 1989 will have similar long-term yes. consequences as 1871. Yeah. I think it's such a different Germany. You know, I think the Germany that we're looking at today is a Germany that has come through two world wars, has had a tremendous period of, of suffering, um, has paid a high price for having been involved in those wars, certainly, in, and I know we still debate about the origins of the First World War, but I think there can be no doubt that the impetus for the Second World War in Europe was Germany um, and the, the desire of, of Hitler and the Nazis to undo what they called the chains of the Treaty of Versailles and, and make Germany a dominant power. 
in the heart of Europe, it is a very different Germany today. Um, and I think we should, you know, there was always that other possibility before Germany. You know, there, there were strong democratic strains in Germany and liberal strains before the First World War. And the First World War tended to um, enhance the, the more authoritarian and illiberal strains, which of course came to the surface again during the Great Depression. But I think it's such a different Germany now. I, I can't myself see it ever becoming um, a menace to the peace of Europe again. Okay, uh, can I put two more questions on uh, the peace part of the, 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 the your talk? And then uh, we have a couple of questions looking at uh, aspects of the war itself. Uh, but one, the first of the questions is from uh, Stephen Paduano from LSE Ideas, saying every now and then I come across a revisionist history, which I don't use disparagingly, about how reparations didn't ultimately impoverish Germany or cause hyperinflation. It's pointed out that reparations amounted to far less of Germany's GDP than Keynes had predicted, uh, 5 to 10% rather than the 25 to 50% he talked about, and that Germany never paid back very much of it anyway. Uh, what is your analysis of the actual economic consequences of the peace? So uh, was Keynes right or wrong? Um, I suppose that boils down to. And then if I can also ask the second question, um, and actually, why didn't you deal with that first? That's quite meaty, and then we'll come yeah. to that. Well, I, I won't remember, but by the time I deal with this one, I won't remember what the second question was. The reparations are fascinating. I mean, the, the, the idea behind reparations was that Germany should pay for damages. Um, not, it should not pay an indemnity, which was often what had happened at the end of wars in the 18th and 19th centuries. If you lost, you paid a fine or you gave up some artwork or, you know, whatever. Um, reparations were meant to be tied to the actual damage done by the war. And it was argued that Germany was responsible for the war, therefore it should be responsible for making good the damage. And you can see the point of view, particularly of the Belgians and the French. Um, virtually all of Belgium had become uh, under, had become part of, of, had been occupied by Germany and, and a great deal of Belgium was destroyed by the fighting. And, and the north of France, where the fighting had also taken place, which had been France's chief industrial area, um, chief mining area, chief steelmaking area had been left absolutely um, shattered. Um, and I think both Belgium and, and the north of France have never really recovered from that. Um, and so the argument that Germans should make good the repairs that needed to be done were, was, I think, a good one, or certainly people felt it was good at the time. The problem was, from the British point of view, the British had financed their allies increasingly. And they had also borrowed money from the United States as the war had gone on. So the British found themselves with a lot of money owed them by the, by the, by the French and the Italians um, and the Belgians and, and their other allies. And they were under pressure, of course, in the United States to pay back their war loans to the United States. And so the British suddenly saw amounts of, of money and, and goods because it was reparations were to be in kind as well as cash coming from Germany to the Belgians, the French, the Italians, but what about Britain? And so the British tried to get things like their shipping that had been sunk, put onto the total reparations bill. And then General Smuts to, the British felt very strongly that there should be a fairer distribution of what was coming from Germany. General Smuts managed to get included in the reparations bill, pensions to the widows and orphans of those who'd been killed in the war, which both increased the size of the bill and also increased Britain's share. Um, and so the bill was pretty big. And one of the problems was that the Germans were forced to sign the treaty without knowing how, bill, how big the bill was going to be. And that was, I think, for two reasons. 
or perhaps three, one of them was that somehow you had to do an estimate of just how much destruction there'd been. And, you know, American army engineers and others were up in the north of France and Belgium trying to tot up what had, so how, what's, the, what's the value of a church? What's the value of a schoolhouse? What's the value of a flooded field? What's the value of a bridge that's been blown up? What's the value of a flooded mine? I mean, these things are not easy to try and, try and, and sort out. And the, another problem was how should Germany pay? Because what the British and others worried about is if Germany was obliged to pay huge amounts, it would probably start exporting more to get the, 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 the funds it needed. If it exported more, it would cut, cut into British markets. So with the British, there was a, tra there was a problem of how Germany was to pay and a, and a problem also just how, how it was to transfer the funds. And so there were a number of issues and it was agreed the the peace treaty uh, set out the responsibility in article 231 for germany to pay and then it said however it will depend on how much germany can pay and on what the final bill is and two commissions were set up to look at how much germany could pay and what the actual final bill was the bill what i think um, the allied statesmen knew was that if they admitted to their publics that they were never going to get everything they wanted they would have been in trouble and again it goes back to this thing of the next election and so what they did was sort of fudge it they, they didn't put a figure in the bill they said we'll set it settle it later and they knew when the figure was finally set that they weren't actually going to get it all and they they divided it sorry this is a bit technical but they divided the reparations into three tranches the first which was paid pretty much in the in the first couple of years after the war was to be um, handed over in gold but also things like um, pit props for, for rebuilding mines and so on. And that tranche was much the smallest. And then there was a second tranche, which ultimately was to be paid for by the government, German government issuing bonds to the German people and others, and ultimately the German government borrowed money, which was to be paid. And then there was the final tranche, which was the biggest of all, which wasn't to be paid until the first two had been paid. And so in a sense, I think the Allies knew they were never gonna get the amount they wanted, but it reassured their public that they were looking after their interests. But from the German point of view, they just saw this hideous bill. And of course they were appalled. And I think there was also a problem. The German government, the Weimar government found itself in a bind because Germany had paid for the war by borrowing from its own people. It had assumed that if it was victorious, it would be able to recompense them and, and pay off the bonds by getting uh, indemnities and, and other resources from those who had lost. And in the case of Belgium, the Germans did, in fact, take a great deal out of Belgium, um, probably against the rules of war. And this is something which Belgian historians have actually been looking at recently. They also, when they signed a peace with Russia, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in 1918, they took whatever gold they could get and they, they, they put in provisions for getting deliveries of wheat and so on and coal um, from the western parts of Russia. And so the German government found itself with a very large bill to its own people because it wasn't going to be able to pay off these bonds because the assumptions on which they'd been issuing the bonds, in fact, had fallen away because they'd lost the war. They also were worried about revolution. And so they instituted, and for all the, for that reason, but also for perhaps more creditable reasons, they instituted a fairly, um, they already had one of the most advanced systems of social benefits in Europe. I mean, that, that had happened before the First World War, but they kept up a very high level of payments to widows and orphans and so on and to the unemployed. So the government was spending money. It didn't have the resources. It was reluctant to, to increase taxes. And so reparations became something of a scapegoat for Germany's own internal problems. And, and it became something of a popular byword. Um, Elizabeth Viscoman, 
who was a British journalist in Europe between the wars, stayed with, with a couple of elderly widows in Weimar. And they were talking, they said, you know, before the war, we, we, we were better off and we could send our laundry out every week. And now we can only send it out every two weeks. It's all the fault of those reparations. So that reparations became a sort of thing to blame. But I think it was a combination of, of partly the policies of the German government, partly they were never going to pay. And, you know, there were two occasions in 1924 and then in 1929 with the help of the Americans, actually, the reparations bill was negotiated down. And in the end, you're right, your questioner is right. Um, the Germans did not pay all that much, but it's perception. You know, it's what people felt. And the Germans felt we've got this hideous bill, it's crushing us, and it's not fair. And if you don't think that the grounds on which you're paying it are fair, then of course you don't want to pay it. And in the end, the Germans didn't pay that much and Hitler canceled them all. Sorry, what was the second question? That was a very long-winded answer, I'm sorry. No, no, that was a, it was a very good answer, though. Um, okay, the, the final question on the peace settlement was uh, sure, from Anne Jones, is surely one of the reasons why the Conference of Versailles was so unwieldy was that Wilson had raised expectations of self-determination for numerous ethnic groups in Central Europe and elsewhere who all descended on Paris to make their claims. Uh, was that a complicating factor? Um, there's a lot of debate about that. Um, Wilson certainly gave, if you like, a, a sort of acceptance of the idea that self-determination was a good thing. It's not a phrase he ever used that much. He talked about the rights of people to choose their own sovereignty. And he seems to have meant that that could be within a larger political grouping. And so the Americans didn't seem, don't seem to have wanted Austria-Hungary to be dissolved. I mean, it was only in the summer of 1918 that that became a war aim as it looked like it was going to disintegrate anyway. What they, he seems to have had in mind was that within Austria-Hungary, the different groups such as the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Hungarians, well, the Hungarians already had a fair voice, but the Romanians, the Poles, should be able to rule over themselves in their own districts. But he doesn't necessarily seem to have wanted to bust up all those multinational organizations. But the fact that Woodrow Wilson was saying it gave encouragement. But I think far more important, actually, was what had been happening on the ground in the center of Europe in particular, but elsewhere, Ireland, for example. I mean, these things long predate the First World War. The push by the Irish for independence is not something that happens because Woodrow Wilson says self-determination is a good thing. And the push by the Czechs for greater independence, um, you know, they would might have been satisfied initially to, to see it within Austria-Hungary, but as Austria-Hungary becomes shaky, shakier, and it looks like um, as one of the Czechs put it, the prison doors are opening, the prison of people is over, then you go for full independence. Um, you know, and I think the roots of those ethnic nationalisms go way back into the 19th century. And, and you've seen a number of, you see in the 19th century and early 20th century before the, first, before the First World War, you see a number of highly organized groups who are pushing for greater and greater independence, not necessarily full independence, but then that becomes possible thanks to the First World War. Thank you. Okay, a couple of questions now looking at the uh, earlier sort of at the war itself. Uh, so one from Ben Waite uh, said, is John Darwin characterizes 1916 as the beginning of a new phase in the war and world history. He contends that it was this moment when participants all pinned their hopes on raising the stakes and a commitment to win at all costs. Was there ever a point where a diplomatic solution could have been found after the outbreak of fighting? And was this ever seriously considered? 
there's actually a new book about this by, and I'm trying to remember the name, it's an American writer, and I'll think of it in a moment, saying that there was a moment at the end of 1916, beginning of 1917, when it is possible that there could have been a negotiated peace. Um, Philip Zelikow, I think it is, and I can't remember the title of the book. I'm not persuaded. Um, certainly Woodrow Wilson offered to try and mediate between the powers, but I don't think there was willingness on either side um, for a negotiated peace settlement. Um, the German high command, what had happened in Germany is the civilian government had, had increasingly less authority. It had always deferred to the military and the military now had become very powerful. And really from about the end of 1916 onwards, what you had was a military dictatorship under generals Ludendorff and Hindenburg in Germany. And they were essentially making policy, not just strategy, they were making policy. And the civilian government was really doing what it was told to do. And so I don't think either Hindenburg or Ludendorff would have gone for a negotiated peace. Austria-Hungary, I think, particularly after the old Emperor Francis Joseph died and, and the very young Emperor Karl took over, was, I think, keen to get out of the war and, and did try through a number of channels to see if there's any way of doing it. But they were so under the thumb of their German ally that I think it would have been very difficult for them to do so. And on this British and French side, I think, you know, the, I'm not, there was not a willingness on the part of Lloyd George and those who supported him. Lloyd George became prime minister at the end of 1916. And Clemenceau, um, who came in to pursue the war with more vigor, there was not um, enthusiasm for a negotiated peace. And I think it's to do, I mean, with a number of things, it's to do with the costs. Um, you know, how do you suddenly say in 1916, well, actually, let's just stop this. Um, we've made a mistake. When you've got these terrible casualty lists and you've got the terrible costs in all sorts of ways, other ways of, of the wars, um, you know, the, the willingness to go on fighting and, and to make sure it was worth something mounts in a way with the losses. Um, you've got an argument like that in Vietnam, you know, when, when Americans increasingly wanted to, you know, certainly there were those increasingly arguing that the time had come for the U.S. to get out of Vietnam. And the argument made was, what about all those who lost their lives when they were here? You know, can we just um, say that their sacrifices were not use, useful? And I think, you know, what, what always strikes me is allied public opinion on both sides, public opinion on both sides, remained, if not enthusiastic about the war, prepared to go on fighting. It seems to me one of the great mysteries, if you like, about the First World War is, is that, in fact, societies held together under such strains for so long. Um, and we saw it again in the Second World War. You know, that, that um, there were always those who said we should make peace. Um, you know, there were those on both sides who said, who, who said the time has come to make peace. But in fact, I think, on the whole, the publics were prepared to go on supporting the war. Um, Russia was different, but I think Russia was an ill-prepared nation even before the war, um, was a deeply divided nation, and, and the regime was, was, with some exceptions, incompetent in the way it ran the war. But in fact, what you got in Britain and France by 19, the end of 1916 was a reinvigorated war effort with new people in charge. Can I continue that theme for the very final question, uh, which picks you up on your reference in the talk to uh, British fears that the French might sue for peace? And the questioner, who is Rupert Wallace, asked, was this ever seriously considered in France at any point? No, I don't think it was. I mean, there were, there were those who were tired of the war. Um, and, you know, it shook the French when they had those mutinies in, in 1917. 
after the Nivelle Offensive. But what strikes me about those mutinies, and I, I've read some of the reports that came out, is so often the soldiers who, who are mutinying saying, it's not that we don't want to fight and die for France. We just don't want, don't want to fight and die in a useless military operation. Um, you know, there was that sense that their officers were incompetent and, and the offensives weren't being well managed. Um, I don't think, I mean, there may have been individuals who, who said this is madness and we're destroying European civilization. I mean, you could say this, but I don't think there was ever a political movement in France. Um, you know, the, the British tended to have, as the French did of the British, they tended to have stereotypes of each other. And the British stereotype was the French are rather emotional and they'll crack and they get hysterical and they'll throw their arms up. Um, you know, I think the British exaggerated this a lot, um, but it's there in a lot of the British documentation. You know, it's there in Haig's diary and whatever, you know, the French, oh, well, the French, they're so emotional, you know, and they can't stick it out, unlike us, you know, tough old Brits. Um, you know, I think this was, was nonsense, um, but it, you, you do, these, these stereotypes play into what you expect of, of the other and how you treat them. But I think the French, you know, were prepared to go on fighting, um, even though, of course, the losses they took were proportionately, the French, I think, lost more men of military age in proportion to their population than any other country except Serbia. Um, well, Britain and France having a slightly mistrustful relationship is uh, is perhaps not uh, an entirely surprising note on which to end uh, proceedings, but uh, uh, some things uh, don't change very much at all. But uh, I, I think we should uh, thank you enormously for a fantastic overview of, of, of both war and peace and uh, dealing with a whole series of questions extremely effectively. I must apologize to all of those who asked questions I wasn't able to pose. I, I literally have many screens worth of, of questions and so I was able to, to pick only a minority of them. So uh, many thanks also to everybody who took part um, and uh, for posing your questions and I hope there'll be another occasion where you get to ask these to as distinguished a speaker or indeed to, to Margaret McMillan herself. So uh, thank you enormously for this. Um, I, we've reached eight o'clock so my only remaining duty is to thank you all for attending and to flag that the next lecture in this series, which we hope will be a hybrid live and um, online event, although with COVID we have learned to not make firm predictions, but that third lecture uh, will be on Monday, March the 21st. So I would encourage you to put that date uh, in your diaries, but I think we should end tonight with a, a virtual round of applause for our excellent speaker. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Th thank you all for listening patiently. Um, and goodbye from uh, Toronto. I'm looking out and the, I can't see anything. It's now snowing very heavily. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.